we're going to be talking today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy. This is our second to last week in 1 Timothy. Then we'll uh, go into 2 Timothy uh, following that. Today's message is called The, the Greater Gain. Uh, so a few weeks ago, Jill and I were in Hawaii. Uh, I know, la, 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 you don't want to hear. Uh, we went with her parents and her two younger brothers. Here, here we are. And uh, we're cruising around the island uh, in our, our tricked out rental minivan. Uh, here was the man who gave it to us. Uh, and then we were checking out beaches and, and volcanoes and became addicted to shaved ice. Uh, it, was, it was good, right? Times were good. And so as we were driving this minivan, uh, my father-in-law, Jill's dad, Brian, was driving uh, pretty much the whole time, because he's the only one that was on the little thing, and, and I'm shotgun, and so life was good, right? I'm sunburnt, but loving it. I've got my salt-caked feet up on the dashboard. We're singing along with the oldies radio, sweet Caroline. Oh, man, we got a church choir in the making. Uh, we know that, uh, that he's telling me stories of when, when he was in the military back in the day in Hawaii. We're having a blast, right? Mahalo, Jesus. Uh, but we come to this red light. And the van stops. Okay, nothing weird there. The light turns green. The van stays stopped. I look over to my left, and my father-in-law is racked out completely asleep. So I calmly freak out. Brian, wake up. You're driving. You're actually not driving. You're sleeping, and that's the problem. I want to grab the wheel. Listen, if you wanted to kill me, uh, you know, that you could have maybe just said no when I originally asked your daughters for your daughter's hand in marriage, right? Didn't take me out in Hawaii. I didn't take 13 COVID tests to come here to paradise only to die because you decided to have a cat nap, right? <laughs> Emotionally, I go from zero to 60 when the van went nowhere. With my feet up in the air, with no care in the world, I went from that to we're going to die, right? For the rest of the trip, let's just say that my trust in his driving was diminished. Um, I, every three seconds, I'm looking over at Rip Van Whipperman, making sure that he's still awake. Uh, we, in, in fact, if, it, if, she, if he wasn't military trained, I probably would have said, you know what? Give me the wheel, right? Give me the keys. Give me the license. You're done, right? We're not going to do this anymore. Uh, and, and the minivan is now better in my hands. Uh, I'm, I'm embellishing a little, and I sure hope that he's not watching on the live stream this morning. Um, <laughs> sometimes, man, I'll tell you what, sometimes life with God is good. We are coasting in shotgun, feet up on the dash, right hand of God with Jesus, aloha, paradise. Now, unlike our, my, my father-in-law, our father in grace, he, he never is asleep at the wheel like this guy, uh, but he's never racked out. But sometimes, doesn't it feel like it? Sometimes as we're living our life, we're going, God, where are you? Where are you right now? Because I need you, and you don't seem to be here. Why are you letting this happen? And we freak out, and we try to grab control of the wheel ourselves because we don't trust the one who is supposed to be driving this thing. In this final chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul's going to examine the hearts of these, first, uh, these false teachers he's been talking to Timothy about in the entire letter. And he's going to con contrast that heart of the false teacher with the true disciple that Jesus is to be, that Timothy's supposed to be, that we are called to be. And he's going to look at the heart of the problem of the false teacher and look at what the solution should be uh, for the true follower of Jesus. And, and my, my, my prayer is that as we hear God's word this morning, that we would let him examine our own hearts and ask the question, who's at the wheel? 
Who's at the wheel of the minivan of your life? So let's first look at the problem. The problem is a distrust of God. If you have your bulletins in there, there's a little handout with a fill in the blank. If there's pens out back, if you, if, out front, if you need to grab one of those. Uh, so the first, the problem uh, with those false teachers is a distrust of God. Look at verse 2 of chapter 6. Teach and urge these things, Timothy. What things? The things that Paul has taught him, the things he's reminded him of in this letter. As we kind of land in the plane, he says, remember these things. Teach them. Urge the people to do these things. Now, what he says next, if anyone, and he's referring to these false teachers in particular, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, godliness, a right worship of God, he is puffed up with conceit. He says, if anybody disagrees, now, Paul didn't say, if anyone disagrees with me, he's conceited, because that in and of itself would be conceited, right? If anyone disagrees with me, they're arrogant, right? That, that, that's an arrogant statement, but he says, not just disagree with me, disagree with who? He says, with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's not disagreeing with Paul. He's disagreeing with the message of Paul that came from the command of God and Jesus himself. You go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, and that's what he says. So listen, we would probably all agree that God is the wisest person in the universe, right? It's a, it's a safe place to land. He makes Elon Musk and, and whoever just won the latest round of Jeopardy look like a fool. If you disagree with God... You're disagreeing with the wisest person, not only the wisest person in the universe, the creator of that universe and the creator of wisdom itself, wisdom personified. He is the definition of truth and beauty and, and goodness. So if you're disagreeing with him, that's a you problem. If you waltz into the throne room and have the audacity to look at that God who's surrounded by angels singing holy, holy, holy on a loop, the God who has the blueprint of the history of the universe in his mind, and you go, mm, I've got a few suggestions Right? I do things a little bit differently. I think it's nice to say of that person, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You could say things that were a lot more harsh about that kind of a person. The person that Paul's describing is teaching something different than what Jesus taught. He's not just saying that this person's struggling to understand. We're all growing in our knowledge of God. We always will be. This is someone who's arrogantly saying, I know more than God. He says that person, in the words of my Bible, Bible school teacher, Butch, that person is a fool. Someone who thinks that they would do better on the throne, behind, better behind the, the wheel of the island minivan than God himself. He says, it's foolish. Now, you might say, well, I would never be that proud. I would never be that foolish. I wouldn't say that. But listen, we, I, could give evidence of that a thousand different ways throughout the day. That, that I believe, and the heart of all sin is pride, and I could do better at being God than God himself. Paul gives us a few examples uh, as we examine our crown-stealing hearts. Here's some evidence that we are on the throne and try to put ourselves on the throne. A, we fight for our royal right. We fight for our royal right. He says he, he has an unhealthy craving, this, this person, uh, for controversy and for quarrels about words and constant friction among people. So this person loves to argue, loves to quarrel over words. So my favorite game in the whole world is catchphrase. And, and I one of the things I love about catchphrase, and then the maybe the bad side, is it brings out the argumentative Justin. And I love to go at it, right? And I'll argue with anything. You can't use that word. There's a root of the word in the phrase you used, right? That's a rhyming word that's clearly against the rules. The buzzer went off in your hand. And we go back and forth. We argue. Why am I so argumentative? Because I want to win, right? I want to be right, and my counselor's really helping me through all that. It's been great. 
This is the mindset that says, I am right. And I'll argue with anyone who tries to show me that I'm wrong. I have to convince you that I'm right. I have to convince you that, that I fool you that I'm right. Maybe even fool myself. Remain on the throne at all costs. I will fight to the death. And listen, if I can't make myself look good, I can at least make you look bad. He talks about slander and dissension. So that's the, the first indication. If we're argumentative, we're trying to twist words to make it ourselves look good. But then the next one, next one is we fear mutiny. We fear mutiny of that throne. So anybody here, uh, he says, verse for which these things produce the envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. So you remember the, my favorite recess game, King of the Hill, right? Um, a lot of good memories from this, a lot of blood on my winter coat. Um, we remember the, the game was a simple premise. There's a hill, and you try to stay on the top of it, right? That's it. And you would fight anybody who tried to take that spot. Now, once you get to the top of the hill, you don't relax. That's actually the scariest time of all, because now everyone's gunning for you. And you're looking over your shoulder, and you're seeing who's coming at me. You're shoving this guy, chucking that guy, trying to keep your spot on the hill. And when we're trying to sit on the throne of our own lives, everybody else becomes a perceived threat. And we're jealous. We don't want, well, I want to be on the hill, not them. Or then once we are, we're suspicious of other people going to try to dethrone us. We become paranoid, especially because we know that we're not God, right? But we've built this lie that makes it look like we've got everything under control, and we don't. We're, our lives are a sham. And so we lie, we try to cover up our shortcomings in hopes that people will see us as on the throne, having it all together. He says in verse 5, these people are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. This wheel-snatching, throne-squatting heart says, God, I don't trust you to be God. Jesus, I don't trust you to be king. That person, he says, is out of touch. They're deprived of the truth. Because in reality, we know who is in control. They're depraved in their mind. Something has gone astray. And then he says they're imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That godliness, that, that living right before God, that's a means to an end. I'm just playing the church game as another way to look good, look right, to take, to gain. Which is, it leads us to a false version of the gospel, which was popular back then and sadly is pretty popular today still. This is called what we call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. This version of the good news says that all of Jesus' promised blessings to us are, are for the here and the now, for this life right now. This is this, is, this, is this guy's mentality. <laughs> There's a church website, a uh, pretty famous church at the time. I don't want to distract us by the name of that church, but they say this right on their front, uh, front of their website. It talks about giving. It says tithing, which is the giving of, of 10% of your income. Tithing is the key to what? To financial prosperity. What's, what's the, behind this? This is not saying we give to the Lord as a way to honor him, to give him what is due to, to, for his glory, but to add to the riches of my own throne room. That, that God exists to make my life go right, to make, to make how I would want it to go. So in reality, who's on the throne in this situation? See, the prosperity gospel is receiving Jesus as a means to receive his earthly gifts. I'm just using Jesus for what I really want. This is the lie that says, I'm going to worship him, but just as a way to receive what I think will really make me happy. I'm going to go to church to make sure that God gives me what I want. I'm going to do the right thing because I want the promotion. I want the girl. Whatever. Really, it's karma. Right? That's the concept of karma. Godliness is a means of gain. If I do X, I will receive Y. 
But there's an equal and opposite lie to the prosperity gospel, which we'll call, just for the sake of rhyming, the austerity gospel. The austerity gospel, to be austere, that just simply it means extreme plainness and a simplicity of style or appearance. So this man is very austere and a little creepy. Uh, he's living all in his, his we're, we're going to go as stark as possible. So where the prosperity gospel says, I'm using God to get earthly gifts, the austerity gospel rejects those earth, earthly gifts. That it says, this mentality says, the more miserable and destitute I am, the better Christian that I'm being, right? The more, the, the, uh, and, and to tweak the words of Hamilton, it would be, smile less, frown more. God will only accept you if you're poor. Right? That, that would be the, the truth. I'll workshop that. Um, God, Paul spoke of these things in chapter 4. Remember when he said that they, these people are lying, they're denying marriage, and they're denying food. This was asceticism, what we talked about. That I can't, I can't do those things. I'm supposed to, be, supposed to be miserable. But both of these are false versions of the gospel. And they miss God's heart completely, which we'll look at here in a minute. The heart of the problem is what Paul addresses next. The root. The root if, the, if the problem is our distrust of God, at the root is a discontentment with God. Verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, surprisingly here, Paul starts out by agreeing that there is great gain in godliness. Remember, godliness to, to worship God rightly. Wor listen, worshiping God is the best thing for us. It, 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 he deserves it. It's the best thing for him, and it's the best thing for us as well. But there's a crucial qualification that he makes here. He says, with contentment, with contentment, it will be gain. Now, this word contentment, it means a sufficiency of the necessities of life. It's a believing that the bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to me? They'll come to you. A believing that you have all that you need. It's a mentality that says, I'm satisfied right here and, and right now. now. Now, follow Paul's logic here. So imagine that you and I, a couple, maybe a couple friends, uh, we, we are ushered into a room filled with $100 bills. There is actually a room such as this. You can find it on Amazon for very cheap. It's called the cash cube. And it'll blow this money around. So let's say we're, we're invited into the cash cube, and we're said that you, it's told us that we have one minute, and we can grab as many dollar bills as we want to, right? It's, they're all there for the taking. But at the end of that minute, on the way back out, you have to give every single dollar back. You don't get to keep any of it. There's a twist. Ding! And it's on. And we start racing around the room. I'm stuffing my cargo pockets. Finally, my cargo pockets come. Everybody used to make fun of my cargo pockets, but now who's got the money? And, 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 then, and I'm stuffing it in my mouth, my ears, my under my armpits, wherever I can do to fit the money. And then I'm starting to see everybody else in the room as, as the enemy, right? We start fighting with each other over that money. We start taking each other's Benjamins, even though there's plenty for, for everybody. We start bragging about who has more. And on all the time, there's a group of people, one of those one-way glass things, and they're watching us just giggling, right? Don't they realize they can't take any of it with them anyway? What are they doing? They're crazy. And the buzzer sounds, and we all on the way out empty our pockets, spit it out, pull it out from our armpits. We give all the, we, we leave with the exact amount that we came in with. Now, this is what Paul's getting at in verse 7. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take, we cannot take anything back out of the world. Notice what, what he's, I, I came out of the womb with nothing in my hands but slimy goo, right? I was a disgusting little baby. I didn't own property. I didn't have anything in my pockets. I didn't have pockets, cargo pockets, right? And, and, and listen, when I die, you can load up my casket with all the goodies that you want, the 401k forms, the latest iPhone, whatever it is in there, but it's all going to become dust and worm food just like this earthly body. 
And what insanity that we spend so much of our time buying stuff, worrying about losing stuff, fighting over stuff, comparing how much stuff I have with what that person has. And at the end of our lives, we empty our pockets. Most days, I know I can speak for myself, I lack this eternal perspective that Paul is calling us into here. And I forget that I'm not taking any of this with me when I go. He says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. We'll be content with food and clothing. What is he pointing out? There's a difference between what we need and what we want. That we will starve if we don't have food, right? That is a basic necessity of this earthly life. In Alaska, if we don't have clothes and shelter, we're not lasting three days in the Alaskan winter, right? How much stuff, though, do we have that we want that we don't need? We have so much stuff that we want that we have to pay for places to store that extra stuff that we're never going to use and probably never even look at again. So not only do we buy useless things, we're now paying more money to store those useless things. We've lost our ever-loving minds. And again, we're not, this is nothing, nothing's wrong with the stuff, right? This isn't the austerity gospel. You're not allowed to own anything. Got to look like that weirdo. But he's not saying this stuff is bad. God made it, enjoy it, and be thankful. But here's where he's saying this mentality leads us. The result of a heart that doesn't trust God, that is not content with God, it leads us. The result is greed. It's greed. He says, and then notice here in this next verse, pay attention to Paul's words, because the alternative to contentment is disaster. It's destruction. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So, we, listen, we always do what we want to do. We always do what we want to do. So if we believe that, that more will make us happy, then we're going to, what he says here, we will desire to be rich. And what we do will be driven by one simple question. What do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? Why go to church? Well, what's, it, what's, it, what's in it for me? Why help that person? Why spend my time that way? Bottom line, what's in it for number one? And, and, and what happens, and we know this, he says you'll fall into this destructive snare. And as you keep putting yourself first and try to become king of the hill, where do you land? Happiness? No, you become the king of a sad, lonely island of despair. doesn't work, does it? We've chased that road. He says in verse 10, and we've heard this before, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I liked what N.T. Wright said about this. He said, many people give lip service to the maxim that money can't buy you happiness. We know money can't buy me love. We, we know that. But, he says, most give life service to the hope that it just might after all. See, we know, we, we can say the right thing, but how do you live? Uh, Pastor Larry used to always say, belief, what we believe, is evidence by life. Belief by life. So I, might, I know that money won't make me happy, but w- the way I live might show a very different thing. The King, J, the, K, the, K, the King JV, the King James Version says that money is the root of all evil. Now, I believe that's overstating it. And actually, when you look at the Greek, that is, that is off base, Mr. James. Um, but what I would say, it says it's the root of all kinds of evil. But I would say, I don't think it's overstating it, to say that the, that the root of all evil is the love of anything rather instead of more than God himself. That, that the heart of all evil is idolatry. To love even the gifts that God gives us more than the giver itself. Even if it's good things like our family, good things like ministry. If we put those above the person of God himself, 
we're worshiping the wrong thing. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So there's only room for one on the throne. And you can replace money with something else there, and it's the same truth. And notice he doesn't say it's, it's money. He doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it's the love of money. It's a heart that says, God, I need more than you. I love something more than you. You're not enough. Because we know it's not about the money. It's not all about the Benjis, right? It's not just about the bill itself. It's not about the number in our account. It's what that represents that is the heart of the issue. And what it often represents for us is a desire for control, right? Money gives us the illusion that we have control over our lives. It, it, it gives us security that if I have the retirement fund, if I have enough for the rainy day and the insurance, I'm going to be safe and secure. It's this illusion of power. I can do what I want. I can live how I want if I have the resources to do it. And it desires approval, right? That if people look at, man, look at, look at Justin. He's doing pretty well. He's a self-made man. This is what Tim Keller and others have called root idols, so it's not the, the, the money that's the problem. The love of money represents what we desire, what we think money will give us, these things right here. Now, you think about a, a parent with, with children. They love them. They want the best for them. But how often do we see this playing out in the way that we view our, our children in their future? You need to go to school. Why? Get a good job. Why? Well, what's often the motive? Because go to school, kids. That's not the point of this. It's the illusion that happiness is bought through security, comfort, control, and approval, and, and that it's the money that through the good education and the good vocation that gave you that. But here's the problem. Craving those, craving those things will lead us away from God himself. Look at what he says at the end of verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, so what he says, the problem is, when I say, God, I don't trust you, I'm going to stop following him, his way, especially if it looks hard, especially if it looks like there's suffering involved, and I'm going to start chasing that rainbow in hopes that the illusionary pot of gold is actually at the end of it. And we all have gone through this, right? As a pastor, I've experienced that. When we were kind of at a low point here, a restart, I first stepped on as pastor, I thought, man, if we just get to 100 people coming to church, I'll be happy, happy pastor. And guess what happened? We had 100 people come. Wasn't happy. Once we double that, 200 people, that will be good, right? Watch out, college heights. 200 people, not happy. 300 people, or 400. You see, that? what, what did Rockefeller say? He said, when he said, how much will make you happy? He said, I just need a little bit more. A little bit more. This is the disease of more, and it's not just money. It's money, but it's also more family. Once I have the spouse, once I have a kid, once I have kids, right? More sunshine. If I go on more vacations, if I finally live in a state that's not snowing in April. More toys. We just get that snow machine, that boat, that four-wheeler, or apparently, as they call them in California, quads. <laughs> Silly Californians. More money, right? More, more property, more investments, whatever it is. And, but, but listen, you can have more money, but in the famous words of the philosopher, notorious B-I-G, more money, more problems, right? <laughs> The more you have, the more you worry about losing. He says you, you pierce yourself with many pangs. And let's have some real talk. If those things bring you happiness, then why do the celebrities still overdose? Why does the CEO with the window overlooking Manhattan still suicide? 
Why is the married person just as unhappy as the single person? Uh, Solomon showed us the exercise. Chase any of those down the road. You're not going to find the pot of gold that satisfies you. At the heart of this, at the root of this, this heart of greed is a distrust of the Father's heart for us. It's a discontent in who Christ is in us, and it's evil. We have to call this what it is. It's not just a little greed, just a little ambition. That at the heart this, don't flirt with sin. It's the heart that says, I'm trying to be God. And listen, we make crummy gods. We try to sit on the throne, we try to drive the minivan, and it leads us off a cliff. So what's the solution? Well, if the problem is a mistrust of God, then the solution must be, and we know the Sunday school answer. We've got to unpack this by the way that we live. It's, it's trusting God. Verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age, as for the rich in this present age, now what he's going to say here to the rich is not the problem is that you're rich. The problem is the money, and therefore the solution is not to get rid of the money, right? That's the austerity gospel. Live with less. That's not the answer. What he says is to the rich, charge them not to be haughty. Not to be haughty. Now, that's not haughty like Jill thinks I'm a haughty. It's a <laughs> different word. The reason that it's so much harder for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven is that he's arrogant. It's the haughtiness. That word means arrogant. It's to think that he's been able to supply all of his own needs. As he looks, and it's so easy for us in the West here. We're living more comfortably than most people in the, in the history of humanity. And so it's easy to start looking around going, I got this. Philip Jensen, I love it, what he said. He said, the self-made man worships his maker. The self-made man worships his maker, which would be, in, in his view, him, himself. But the poor, and not the poor, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, not those who have less money, but the poor in spirit, because they have the humility to realize their need, that their heart is tuned to the grace of God. They need to receive what they don't already have. And what he says here, don't be haughty and charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I love this. This is a brilliant turn of phrase. He says, don't put your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think that those uncertain riches can be certain. Don't stand in the rickety chair boasting about it and doing the, the Mexican hat dance on top of the rickety chair. You're on a faulty foundation. And we know how life can change in an instant. The stock market can crash. The money loses its value. The house can burn. Our body uh, in a switch, flip of a switch can go downhill. It's all temporary. Not only earlier, he said, we can't take it with us, verse 7. We can't even guarantee that we're going to keep it for as long as we're here. Pastor Larry used to always say, we're all a phone call away from life changing forever. It's a house of cards that can crumble in a millisecond. He says, don't put your hope in those riches, those uncertainty of riches, but on the certain God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We do not trust a false sense of security for our future, but in the one who holds the future, which leads us to the root. If the solution is to trust God, the root of the trusting of God will come in contentment, contentment in Jesus. He says, put your hopes on God himself. So, when I give Jill a gift or I do something for her, it's a symbol of the, the love that I want to show her. It's because the gift won't sustain her happiness, right? The flowers wilt. The, the chocolate gets eaten. Trust me, it gets eaten. Nor, nor does the act sustain, right? I did the dishes for, for, uh, for us, right? And the dishes get dirty again, right? Which is always why I'm like, why do we do it, honey? Why, what's the point, right? Everything's meaningless. You heard Solomon. But... <laughs> 
Jill has misunderstood my love if she's like sweet. So I've found out when I'm good, when I, when, I, when I make Justin happy, he gives me gifts. He gives me flowers and chocolate. So I do the good thing, I get the chocolate, and I push him out of the way and go, chocolate! Right? And it doesn't happen. It's a hypothetical. She, she also misunderstands my love if she rejects those gifts and says, I don't deserve that. Just give me the basics, right? Slide some stale bread under my door every once in a while. Give me that little hamster feeder thing. I'll be good, right? That's all I need. That's not a wife, that's an inmate. I don't want to just give Jill her basic needs. I want to lavish my love on her. I want to make her laugh and delight. I want to make her feel like the most loved woman in the world. And listen, the true gospel is that God in Jesus didn't just get us to squeak by. He says he richly provides us with everything, not just that we need, but to enjoy. God wants us to delight in all the good gifts that he's given us, which this speaks against both of these false gospels that we've been mentioning. The prosperity gospel misunderstands his love by saying that my obedience to him, my allegiance to him, to him is just a way to get his gifts, right? And shove them out of the way and go, chocolate! That we see godliness as a means to gain. But we also see that how the austerity gospel also misunderstands his love. When we say, no, 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 I don't, I don't deserve that. Don't, you don't give me that. We reject the free gift. And what are we really saying? That's pride too. Say, I'm going to earn it. I don't receive it by grace. So God, our good father, through our loving, providing husband, Jesus, has given us not just what we need, but abundantly more. So how beautiful. You think about the good gift of food. Hallelujah. He doesn't just give us, like, he could just give us these little square, tasteless cubes that kind of give us sustenance or, like, plug this in at night. But what did he do? The way I'm going to nourish you and give your body energy is through this amazing smorgasbord, right, of fresh fruit and baked bread and ice cream sandwiches straight from the hand of God, right? And he also didn't just give us for breathing, like, these poles that emit oxygen. All right, we don't suffocate. What did he give us? He gave us these beautiful fields of flowers and trees of infinite variety and plants, right, to behold his beauty. So that we can say with the mouthful of ice cream sandwich, thank you, God, thank you, Jesus. That we can stand at the foot of the redwood and say, my God is so great. That we can smell the flower and say, my God is beautiful and he's given me good gifts to enjoy. But listen, the gifts will only satisfy us if they point us to the source of the gifts themselves. The chocolate will eventually get eaten. The flowers will eventually wilt. There's only one who will sustain us. And the reality is, here's the reality. If we don't see these gifts as from the hand of God, if we're not satisfied right now, we will never be satisfied. I, if, if Jesus is not enough for me in Alaska, he will not be enough for me in Hawaii. That, that if, if Jesus, if Jesus is not enough for me in whatever work situation I'm in right now, that promotion won't give it to me. If, 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 I, if Jesus isn't enough for me as a single person, he won't be enough for me as a married person. The list goes, once I'm retired, the list goes on and on and on. So I came out of the womb with the only thing that I needed. I belonged to a mother and a father. And they gave me a name. And they loved me. That's all I needed. Philippians 4 says, you want to know the secret to contentment? 
how you can be content whether you have much or have little, if you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death or up on cloud nine. He says the secret is in Jesus to know that you have a name and you have a good father who gave you that name through his only son. You see, playing king of the hill is exhausting and terrifying. Life on the throne brings paranoia and fear and mo problems. But when God's on the throne, what's he say in verse 6? Godliness with contentment, that he's enough, he's enough. He says, that's the good life. That is great gain. The problem isn't having money, and therefore the solution is not getting rid of it or not having it in the first place. That's the false gospel of austerity. It's being content with whatever circumstance we're in, seeing that from the hand of God. You know what Saul then says in Ecclesiastes? It's seeing that my lot is from him. And it's, it's simply being in that and in thanking our God and glorifying our God right where we are. The happiness is only found in God himself, in a relationship with him, not in the gifts. You give and you take away. Blessed be your name, said Job, a man who knows what it's like to not have and to have. If we believe that God's heart is toward us, he says, here's the outcome. Here, here's the result of the heart that trusts God and is content in God. He says the result is generosity. The generosity. And this is the gospel message. That instead of receiving what we did deserve, death, and because of our sin, separation from God, our God generously gave us more than we could ever deserve. And he gave us this over-the-top, abundant love, the most generous gift that could ever be given, his own life. He was talking in 2 Corinthians to, to the church there in Corinth, and he was appealing to them to be generous. And, and this was his appeal, because this is who our God is in Jesus. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. You know the free gift of abundant love that he lavished on you. That though he was rich, God here, Jesus was in heaven with God, had everything he needed. He abandoned that position to come down into this world of pain and suffering with us. He became poor. Why? For your sake. He didn't need it. It was for you, for me. So that, here's the result, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's by Jesus emptying of himself unto death that we might have life and all of our needs, needs met in Jesus. So when we worship God rightly, which is godliness, he says it is great gain. But not because of the cookies that we get from him. Because we become as he is. And this is what he says will happen. To the rich, this is what stuff looks, looks like. They are to do good. Not get rid of your money, but to do good with the money. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. I, I love this word generous here. Because it's ready or free to impart. See, it's, not, it's not the mentality that grasps on to myself. I must have it. Don't take it from me. It's, I'm ready. I'm free. If you say to give it, Lord, I'm going to give it. If I, can, if I can bless someone else with it, I want to bless someone else with it. That's the heart of Jesus. And that's our heart to, to become our heart as well. Not generous, not, not selfish takers, but generous givers. And the only reason we can do this is because just like Jesus was not operating out of, if Jesus needed something, he wouldn't have been able to give to us. Jesus has everything he needs. He's self-sufficient as God. And when we have all our needs met, it's only when we can breathe. Remember on the airplane, if, you can, if you're dying, if you don't have oxygen, you can't be very helpful to anybody. But if you can breathe, you're now free to turn to your neighbor and help them know how to breathe. And listen, because all of our needs are met in Jesus, we are free to spend the rest of our time, to spend the rest of our resources here on earth to point other people to the oxygen. And the cool thing is, he shows the gain that's, that's here. Ultimately, it's not the stuff, it's life. Look at verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So, here's the end game, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
Not in the stuff that you have. It's the life that you live. The cool thing is, as Jesus followers, we can use the temporary things of right now for eternal good. We can actually use these things as, an, as a means to an end, not the end themselves. So I have money. It won't make me happy, but I can use this money to give to other people, to help meet other people's needs, which meets their immediate needs, but it also shows them God's generous heart and can lead them to the most generous gift that God wanted to give them, Jesus Christ himself, our greatest treasure. You can't take any of that stuff with you in the casket when you go, but you can use it to benefit forever. He says, oh, take hold of what is truly life. What is true life? What's, what's the eternal life? Jesus defined it in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. If you want to know the good life, the good life is to know and be satisfied with God himself. And what this leads us to is, is this, this concept. If you want to live the good life, feet propped up without a care in the world, finally finding rest and contentment, peace in your life. It's going to be not by trying to grab that steering wheel, but by trusting the one who's in control. See, here's the irony. Jesus paints this picture in Mark 10, Matthew 10. If you cling to your life, if you make your whole life about taking and preserving and holding on and putting myself on the throne, he says, this life, you will lose it. That selfishness leads you off the cliff. But if you give up your life for me, if you surrender, if you let go to take hold, you can't take hold of Jesus if you got all the other stuff grasped onto you let go of that and you cling on to me, he says, you will find it. You will find life in Jesus alone. We're called to die to ourselves and to our selfish needs and demand the steering wheel. And when we let go, that's when we find true life. Pray with me. Father God, now we know the answers. We, we know the answers on paper, but we see so often by our lives. I know my own heart, how, how much I, I put trust in myself instead of you, that I try to take control of this world and I see the mess that I make when I do it. Father, I pray that we would be a people that would see correctly. Anytime we're on the throne, it only leads to fear, suspicions, paranoia, lies, problems, destruction, and death. But Father, when we finally acknowledge the reality that you are the good God, the wisest of the universe, hold the universe in the palm of your hand, that you sent Jesus to give us everything that we need and all of our needs are met in him, the person of Jesus. That we can receive these gifts, not as an end to themselves, but as a symbol of your love. That we'd be a people marked by repentance that would recognize when we've gone off that track and to turn back toward Jesus. That we'd be a people marked by not greed and what we can take and hoard and preserve, but by generosity, the Christ-like sacrifice and giving to our families, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to the world beyond, that we'd spend the rest of this very small life that you've given us here on earth to lay up treasure, not here, not right now, not in the things that are going to just go into the ground as dust and worm food anyway, but the things that will last for eternity, more people knowing the only treasure worth grasping onto, Jesus himself, and it's his, in his beautiful, generous name that we pray. Amen.